Uh, hello, thank you for uh, your patience. It may be required for this panel. Um, I'm Jacob Weisberg. I'm the chairman of the Slate Group, which includes Slate Magazine, where I was an, uh, the editor and a writer about politics for many years. Uh, I also uh, run a podcasting company called Panoply, which is part of the Slate Group. And uh, as part of my responsibilities in that regard, I host a show called Trumpcast. Uh, we're doing a live show this evening at the Texas U Union Theater. And uh, I can take this opportunity to give a small plug for the show, which is at 7.30. Our guests are going to be Jill Abramson, the former editor of the New York Times, formerly Frank's boss, uh, and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Congressman Joaquin Castro. Um, and I uh, will also have my co-hosts of Trumpcast, Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie. So it's going to be a great show. There's still a few tickets left, I gather, if anyone doesn't have plans tonight. So if, uh, if Frank can hear me as well as see me, we're going to get started with, with our panel. Yes, I, okay. can, I can hear you a little better, and I can sort of see you. It's like in floodlamps. But yes, great yes. to be ta here and talking to you. I'm sorry I'm not there in person. This is, a, this is very veep, this whole situation. It, uh, it is. All we need is Selena Meyer uh, uh, being in the middle of it and not knowing what to do in that case. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure I'm much better than she is, but anyway. If you would uh, just utter a brief stream of profanity, it would really, we would. Yes, uh, are we allowed to do that yeah. in the Texas Tribune? <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think we okay, can, okay. I, I think this is, I think this is PG-13 at least. Although okay, some of the good. profanity good, on your good. show is a little, is a little beyond that. It's maybe yeah, I guess profanity. so, yeah. Um, but uh, Frank, just to introduce him properly, I'm sure all of you know who he is, but he first uh, came to fame as the theater critic for the New York Times. Uh, and then he continued as the theater critic for the New York Times, but writing about politics. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he uh, uh, has been writing for several years now for New York Magazine, uh, including a piece I want to ask him about later, which was, I think, his last big piece, which was about how the present moment is like Watergate. Uh, he thinks it's a lot like Watergate. Um, and, of course, he is the executive producer of Veep, a show that uh, many of us have been watching with extreme pleasure for six seasons now. And I gather you, the reason you're not with us in person, Frank, is you're working on season seven and the last one? Actually, no, the re the, we're in a, a little pause on season seven where we finished uh, figuring out the story, which is a story that ends the series. It's going to be our last season but the scripts are now being written so we can shoot it. But the, the, what caught me up uh, this week is I'm also producing another series for HBO that shoots in New York and starts uh, is in pre-production now and sort of starts going uh, a Monday morning. And, and I've been working on it through yesterday. So it's um, intense sort of having a lot of television production going on. What, well, uh, it's, it's nice to see uh, another person find such a, uh, such a good life raft away from journalism. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's weird because um, when I left uh, uh, the Times, it had nothing to do with any of this. I just wanted to do something different and write for Adam Moss at New York and write less frequently and, and longer. Um, but Veep, uh, I'd been working a bit for HBO by then, but Veep was just making its pilot. And I know from experience, as anyone who works in TV does, that most pilots are not picked up. And so that this show would actually happen and then run this long has been kind of 
lucky and a lot of fun for me, but it's almost like an unexpected pregnancy. It's like, you know, and then the, and then as I as I sort of downsized my journalism a bit, journalism ran into all these problems, which Jill can talk about much better than I can. That, uh, but I didn't anticipate them either, quite honestly, or the the degree of them. Yeah. Um, well, so I think the the official title of our panel today is. Uh, Veep imitates life, but watching right. this season, I've certainly had the feeling that it's the other way around, that it's life that seems to be imitating Veep. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, as uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus said in, in winning, when she accepted the Emmy a couple of years ago, uh, what we thought was, uh, you know, sort of scabrous satire has turned into a sobering documentary. Um, <laughs> and, and, and there's something to it, but it's, it's fast. I mean, I'm in the inside of it, so I, you can be more objective or, or probably more uh, analytical than I can be. But um, one thing about our show from the beginning is we never referenced contemporary politicians. We've never rep mentioned anyone after a Reagan. Huh. We've never had a, a Clinton joke or an Obama line or a Trump joke. And we think of these seasons uh, long ahead of time. And when we were making last season, she was a... Um, a president had been thrown out of office who had lost. And we thought, oh, people are going to uh, sometimes think she's like Hillary, but she really isn't at all. Um, but now they're, they're going to, I guess, they will interpret it as a, um, uh, a counter history of Hillary had actually lost. So we, we didn't see what was down the pike as much as anyone. We feel that because um, we're trying to take the, the, the most, I guess, cynical and nasty view of the Washington culture it is, it's caught up with us. In some places, uh, it's gone past us. We've had to cut jokes because Trump said them or someone around <laughs> Trump said them, you know, and so we don't want to look like, because we don't want to look like we're copying from reality. And we, in the end, what I think has saved us, if we've been saved and people such as yourself are still enjoying the show, is the fact that um, these characters, this, this seven or eight core characters have been so keenly developed uh, and embodied by these actors over a period of time, that they have a life of their own. And so when they intersect with the political culture, this crazy one we have now, it's, it's interesting, but it's not, it's, it, it doesn't always happen. And we hope it's funny and the characters are interesting to watch uh, dramatically as well as comedically, no matter what's happening in the real world. And maybe for some viewers, it's an escape from the real world, a welcome one. Uh, the, the writers must have some models in their heads. I mean, it's poss impossible not to have it pop into your head that Selena Meyer is a you know centaur cross between Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin, or you could say Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, or choose your own centaur. But it's sort of yeah, unavoidable. It is. Although keep in mind, the original creator of the show, Armando Iannucci, and the original writers for the first four years of the show were all British. Yeah. Uh, and they were not that they don't know American politics; they know it quite well. But it was very much outsiders looking in. And you know, before we ever even started production on the first season, uh, a an early draft of the pilot script somehow got out and ended up at all places. Uh, Breitbart, when Breitbart was still around, <laughs> and they did a whole campaign. I'm, I'm afraid to us. tell you, Frank, Breitbart is still around. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, Breitbart I mean, himself it, I, is no longer still around. Breitbart, yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the eponymous, uh, yeah. A little wishful thinking there, yes. Yeah, yeah, Breitbart yeah. is more around now than yeah. then. But Breit, <laughs> Breitbart was then actually something of a young upstart. It had a lot of Hollywood roots, of course, including Breitbart himself. They found this script. 
They looked up and saw that Julia had uh, uh, given to Democratic uh, campaigns in, in years past, and they immediately, based on a very rough pilot script, said, oh, this whole series is um, to attack Sarah Palin, uh, simply because I guess she was vice president, because she's really not like Palin. She's not as canny as Palin, quite honestly, or as or as um, uh, or even as ideological. I mean, we never even assign a political party to our right. candidates for that reason, because all they care about is themselves. I think we'd agree Palin cares about herself, but she also has an ideology. Um, but uh, you know, there, we 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 read everything. We you know, we look at history. We talk to a lot of people in politics, Republicans and Democrats. Of uh, uh, you know, all sorts of people have talked to us over the course of the show. And we take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and try to root it a bit in reality. But no character is totally based on anyone. You know, I don't think we can deny that there's a, a little of uh, Ted Cruz in Jonah. Um, <laughs> but that said, Jonah was established as a character before Ted Cruz was on the scene. So these things sort of converge right. at a certain point. You sort of ran with that idea of what if there was a member of Congress who everyone hated. <laughs> everyone, everyone hated. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, incredibly arrogant, given his lack of uh, political skills and knowledge. And um, you know what can I say? I love, I love the character. One thing I'd say about Jonah too, that, by the way, that has nothing to do with real life politics. Um, Armando Iannucci, who's, uh, who may be known to some people who are uh, listening to this, not only for creating Veep, but for a uh, the movie In the Loop, which may be the best movie about the Iraq War, and and also for the thick of it, a a, a very funny show he did about uh, um, British politics, um, is also a, an expert in Dickens, and he made a great documentary about Dickens for the BBC. And I, I look at Jonah, and I feel there's a little Uriah Heep. <laughs> these are really there's something Dickensian about some of these characters as well. Yeah. Well, you you hit on an interesting point. Uh, Iannucci is you said Scottish, is of course with yes. a very Scottish sounding name, Armando Iannucci. Yes. Uh, but uh, you know his characters have more in common with each other than the characters do with any real politician. And what they have in common with each other, among other things, is this absolutely Baroque profanity, which, as far as I'm, I've experienced, is not actually part of politics in the UK or the US, but is delightful. <laughs> well, I'm glad you find it delightful. Some, you know, it's interesting. Some people in Washington say, oh, this is just how people talk in private when there's no press around. Obviously, not all of them do. But you know, there's some cases where we've pulled lines, uh, including, you know, filthy lines from stories we've heard from, shall we say, sitting members of uh, uh, either the House or the Senate who have told us anecdotes, nasty anecdotes about their colleagues. And, and by the way, colleagues on uh, Republican and Democratic alike. So who knows? But yes, we really pump it up. And it's part of the comedy of the show and sort of the fun of uh, writing it and putting it together. Yeah. How is it, I, I mean, it, it, it's sort of in, in line with a lot of uh, modern comedies like uh, Seinfeld or Curb, Curb Your Enthusiasm. The characters are pretty much to a one all terrible people. Yes. Right? Uh, how is it to work as a writer on a show like that where the humanity of the characters is really not part of the program? I mean, you're just sort of, yeah. Right, well, that's a great point. I mean. Certainly, we never say, you know, oh, 
now we're going to redeem Jonah because, you know, he's going to rescue a cat from the top of a tree or something, you know. Um, we never look at their humanity. I would say that um, the, uh, the driving issue is the story. And, and, and so the story determines their lack of humanity. We write for these great actors, if I may say so, this, one, this wonderful group of actors um, an ensemble, starting with Julia, of course, uh, and they somehow humanize them. I mean, look at Julia's character. This is this is a part of, I think, her brilliance. Everything about her is terrible. She's completely narcissistic. She'll screw over anyone around her, her most loyal aides. She's a horrible mother. She's horrible <laughs> to her daughter's uh, partner. Uh, she's she's terrible to children. She's terrible to wounded veterans. She's she's has no ideas at all. Um, and yet, there's something very people people love Julia in this role. And it's yeah. and and I think that's a tribute to her humanity that somehow you see the person in there through that performance. And I think if we had a lesser actor in that role, it might not play the same way. It might come out just mean and nasty, and then it would not be funny or really watchable, I think. It's funny, I was thinking of a version of that, that same point. Julia is such a, an intelligent actor that it's impossible for her character to be quite as stupid as you may have intended her to be. Exactly, she's, she's yeah, she's really, uh, you know, incredibly, incredibly smart and, and on top of everything and, and um, May, you know, I feel one. Of, I've been really have to say incredibly lucky to have spent been in the trenches with her, including four years where we shot the show in Baltimore, away from home for both of us. Uh, uh, she's such a joy, and she is. And, and look, and she the, sh the show is not improvised; it's written. Lines are constantly changed, and scripts are uh, updated, including on the day on set. And you know, sometimes she's in, in, in essence a writer because she'll come up with. Um, uh, uh, a brilliant line. We were just uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, the end of just before Labor Day, we were pitching in the writers' room in, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, the whole season to her. And we came to one episode where I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it involved maybe the, Selena needed a slogan to capitalize and exploit a political moment, and it just popped out of Julia's mouth, and it, we rejiggered everything around it. We had been searching for it, you know, in the room and hadn't found it. So we're fortunate. Tell me a little bit about the process of creating the show. Are you in the writer's room all the time when the writing's happening? I am. I, am. I the first, the first, uh, uh, the, the British phase, there was no writer's room. It was, uh, the writers all lived basically in the suburbs of London. And so the process was, uh, and, and even there, there were no meetings among them. Armando didn't, doesn't do it that way. So essentially, writers generating drafts, writing behind each other, them coming to me to to uh, give my thoughts and notes and pitches on. Uh, Dave Mandel, David Mandel, who took over for Armando at the end of the fourth season, is is out of is an American classic uh, 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 Hollywood uh, comedy writer system. I mean, he 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 is a Harvard Lampoon, SNL. Uh, the tail end of Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, are his ma major credits. And um, he wanted a room. He asked me to be in it. And so I've been in it for three years. And um, 
I, I had no interest in sitting down and writing scripts, but I'm, you know, I'm very involved and it's a total joy because it's like a dozen people or so. They're all interesting. Come, all of them have, have, you know, the most incredible stories, including horror stories to tell. They've worked on everything from a Larry Sanders, which by the way, was a, those who remember that show was a, a big influence on Armando and creating the show in the first place to Frazier to Letterman to the daily show to the Simpsons and Bob's Burgers, you name it. And so it's fun. And people, and the way it works is it's not like people are sitting around so much and pitching jokes. Um, we're really going character by character by character for weeks. What if he did this? What if she did this? How would she intersect with him um, at that point? What if the plot took this twist or that twist? And gradually it's like watching, um, you know, uh, something congeal. I don't know how, you know, like, almost like if you're making a soup and suddenly it starts to, to thicken uh, or stew and it starts to make sense. And, and for instance, this year where we were thinking towards the end, we weren't quite, we were thinking and thinking, but meanwhile, plotting all these lines for each character, these storylines. And then really in the last two weeks of the room, right before Labor Day, it all sort of came together and then start writing it on whiteboards and, there you have it. And now, now what's going on is that uh, uh, there are outlines of each episode and kind of like a magazine assigning pieces for an yeah. issue. Different writers have been uh, uh, assigned different episodes. As they're generated, we'll all read them. People will rewrite each other. Dave will rewrite everybody. Almost like, a, it reminds me of the old days when I was at Time Magazine. You know, there are all these top editors. But it's very, very collegial. And in the end, you can't remember... Uh, who wrote what? And occasionally, you know, I'll be I'll wa watch an episode when it's on the air and say, "Oh, I think I wrote that line actually," but then, but maybe I didn't. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't remember. Maybe it was Pete or Jen. You know, so it's a collective product are. by the end. Yeah, yeah, it really is. What's the uh, level of verisimilitude you're you're striving for? I mean, I know a lot of work goes into the Washington parts of it having elements that people really recognize as, as real. Yes, from the, what we do is we, from the beginning, they've slightly changed up along, along the way, but not much. We've had, or we've added to them. We have a series of, we've had a bunch of consultants who, uh, when we have a question, particularly when we've been dealing with things like um, constitutional law and a, and a tie in the electoral college, everything from that to who carries the bags and how many secret service go on a trip to a foreign country. So we've had this really good group of people that in, uh, includes um, uh, Eric Lesser is now actually in the course of the show become a state legislature, <laughs> a legislator in Massachusetts, but who began like handling bags for Axelrod in the Obama campaign in 08 and became a staffer uh, in the Obama White House. Uh, Anita McBride, who was the social secretary for um, Laura Bush and had a long history of working in uh, Republican uh, uh, White Houses. Uh, Tammy Haddad, sort of uh, the notorious uh, jack of all trades in Washington. Um, uh, when we were doing the constitutional law, we uh, very helpful as an advisor, and these people are all credited on the show, is Jeremy Bash, who's now constantly on CNN <laughs> talking about the, the illegality of the Trump administration. Um, but who had been, you know, a, a, a government uh, legal official? I think in the Pentagon, as I recall, or state. Um, and uh, and 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 
Dave Mandel is an old, old friend of uh, Norm Ornstein. So he's also been a big help. But we've talked to everyone from Alex Castellanos to um, people who worked uh, to Mitt, Mitt and Ann Romney uh, to uh, um, who else? Doug Band. I mean, it's really quite a cast of characters of we've, we've called on when we want to make sure we get the details right. Because even though I grew up in Washington and sort of have at times covered Washington, I um, uh, don't uh, uh, know all this minutia. And, and uh, so, it's, so we feel we're usually on safe ground and don't make too many mistakes. Now, your mention of uh, Tammy Haddad raises the question of whether the uh, Washington fans of the show actually fully get the show. Because she's like, she's like the epitome Good friend uh, of mine, of course, but she's like she's like the Washington operator who works for anybody, you know, socializes with everybody, is in a constant preposterous, you know, post-political whirl. You, I, I, I yes, and so you <laughs> tell me, she she acts as if she's in on the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure, but she she claims to really like the show and. Um, and she's helped us enormously. Indeed, we found a couple of our consultants through her, including Jeremy and, and uh, Anita. Um, but yes, um, so she, she at least talks a good game that, of, uh, of knowing that she's part of the Washington that we're uh, trying to uh, decimate. <laughs> right. Well, in a funny way, you trying to decimate it is is good for Washington. Washington absorbs all of these blows and you know, uh, accrues it to its, uh, gr its greater glory. It's more glamorous if people are putting it on television for any reason, right? I guess, I guess so. There's so many shows about Washington now. It's kind of insane, really. I mean, uh, it's, it's like uh, uh, even my, bro my brother-in-law is a cameraman in New York on Madam Secretary, you know, which is a completely different tone of our show, it seems like half the people I know are working for House of Cards or Scandal. You know, uh, it's, uh, we've had friends on, that were on um, Alpha House, on uh, the, the Washington show that was on Amazon. So it's really, it's like a, a, a growth industry to rival the federal government at its peak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my basic trinity is the, you know, the West Wing represented the Washington that liberals wanted it to be. House of Cards represents what conservatives think Washington really is, and Veep represents what it really is. Well, <laughs> minus, minus some of the profanity. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's that's nice to hear. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, we talk. West Wing obviously is a reference point. Was for Armando and Dave, and to some extent, and we are definitely uh, the un-West Wing. I mean, truth. Justice never triumphs in V. Nothing <laughs> good ever happens. Yeah. No one makes an eloquent speech unless it's by accident uh, and, and not even knowing what they're saying. Um, and House of Cards, of course, I have to say, yeah, that's, I, I like your point that it's what conservatives think Washington is. But, you know, it's interesting. We have conservative fans. Most Our favorite story is that... Um, uh, Julia, who's actually from Washington and whose uh, mother and stepfather uh, still live in Washington, um, her mother ha you know, was going has a, a gym trainer, you know, uh, um, in down down there, and um, 
turned out he, among his other clients was uh, Scalia, when he, obviously when he was alive, and Scalia is an enormous fan of the show. And uh, uh, and asked and for Julia through the tr trainer and Julia's mother to get her to sign a, a picture, and indeed supposedly he and, and Elena Kagan are both you know talk about it or did when he was alive obviously, so I, I, we like the fact that uh, we although we're not trying to be a you know bipartisanship at all but we, we like the fact that we have. Um, Republican fans. Romney is is uh, is a big fan of the show, and indeed, uh, Stuart Stevens, who dropped by the writers' room, his former uh, campaign manager um, uh, this summer, said that it, that uh, Romney's uh, Romney's Christmas present to all their friends were DVD sets of Veep. Seems incongruous, but there you are. But with all the profanity bleeped out. Uh, yeah, or, or maybe there's a secret thing going on there we don't know about. Another <laughs> myth. Romney really likes it. Of... He watches it on mute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I know you mentioned that the, uh, the show is uh, kind of a collective uh, uh, product as far as the writer is concerned. But whose genius idea was it to uh, go to Georgia this season? That is, uh, and I, I, right around the time that the, that the uh, Trump-Russia scandal was breaking, there was this episode, and back to our Veep imitates life, or life imitates Veep theme, you know, really did seem ripped by, from the headlines, where these political consultants are going with Selena Meyer to try to grub money from these corrupt post-Soviet officials who were you know, engaged in a competitive bribery to get her to uh, name the election, the, the winner of the election. It, it, it's totally wild. And there's another piece of the story that you may not know. Who thought of it? My guess is Dave Mandel, but I, uh, it probably was. I, I have a feeling it was an E-Day fix that she go over. He, he, Dave came up when he first started on the show over two years ago. He, he always when he pitched, when we were hiring him to succeed Armando, he pitched to me and Julia uh, um, basically two seasons that he never really varied from. One was that she was going to lose to Montez, uh, and the other was that she was going to try to start a presidential library, even though, as he <laughs> said, it might be a bookmobile since she was only in office <laughs> eight months. Um, uh, I think Georgia was his idea, but I think it was somewhat arbitrarily chosen. But the part of the story that's even more incredible is when that was being shot in and in our Georgia was uh, Pasadena. Um, that was we were shooting the scene of a corrupt election uh, in this in this uh, country. The the night the day and night of election day when Trump was elected, and so. That in itself was very strange, not that we thought that the election was rigged, as Trump did until he won, but that we thought, here's this election, obviously most, essentially everyone in the show was stunned and, and upset that uh, uh, Trump had won. And in fact, we had to re end up having to reshoot a lot of those scenes because no one was in the mood to be funny. And it was, you know, we were in the middle of shooting. So that was strange enough that we're shooting this election. Then it's complete coincidence, it airs months later. And meanwhile, the whole story that you just described in the Trump administration and the, the Russian problem had hit it up in a way it, it wasn't at all when the show was written and really didn't exist even at the time we shot it. 
So kind of had, you had everything but the FISA warrant. Yeah, it's really, we even had a line we took out. We had a line that I, I, I'm pretty sure we took it out about um, with Stephen Fry uh, conceding that uh, uh, he was a play as a Georgian, yeah. uh, corrupt Georgian official, that everything, that he's tapping the phones of everybody. Uh, and um, and remember, we, uh, we, it seems like a century ago now when all the stories surface of the dossier about Trump and that he might have been, uh, there might have been eavesdropping on him in in Russia. Uh, and I don't know whether we, I, I think we took it out in part because by then that had happened and we didn't want to, people to think that we were drawing from that because we weren't. Yeah. So you mentioned you have these, uh, some rules around the show and I guess they're designed to, to make it not too much about what's really happening. You said you don't mention any president after Reagan. What are the, I know, I know a lot of shows do have these sort of uh, strictures they set up for my, themselves. My uh, brother is the showrunner of The Americans. Right, and they, of course. And the way Great they show. Do, they, uh, thanks. Uh, and the way they do that show is uh, essentially it, they work around the known facts. So nothing can contradict history that's, that, isn't, that, that we know happened. But anything that could have happened around that history, they'll, they'll use that in their storytelling. And that's very interesting. I think setting limits like that, it probably ends up being very important. What are the kind of parameters beyond the one you mentioned? For well, I, I'd, say, I'd say the biggest parameter is there's never a mention of either the Democratic or Republican parties. There's never, uh, no one is identified by a party. This began with Armando, because his feeling is, they're all horrible and it doesn't matter who's in power in the loosest sense. So that's one thing. No contemporary politicians, uh, no references to news events. You know, you look at, there was a show on HBO, Aaron Sorkin's uh, The Newsroom, and it would have, you know, the, the, the oil spill, uh, it, it, the BP oil spill. It would have Gabby Giffords being shot. We never go near any of that stuff because we really want to have an alternative world. And so it even it even goes down into things that have nothing to do with politics. For instance, this season, we um, we had a scene where Selena, having published her uh, memoir of being president and being trashed for it, uh, goes on The Tonight Show. And actually, there are two examples of that this season. And so we did not have... A lot of shows would have, you know, a Wolf Blitzer or a Jay Leno or possibly a Jimmy Fallon, you know, play themselves or a Rachel Maddow. We never do that. We've never done it from the beginning. So we created a fake uh, host. We actually did offer the job to, to uh, David Letterman, who's a fan of the show. Um, and by, by this point, it obviously had retired from his own show because Dave's, Dave Mandel's thinking was, in an alternative universe, he never was on. He never was the host of the Tonight Show. In our alternative universe, David Letterman could be the host of the uh, uh, Tonight Show. A little bit of a stretch in logic, but anyway, he considered it seriously and decided he didn't want to shave and come west and all of that. <laughs> uh, so he hired a very good actor named Adam Scott, who was in the Park Parks and Rec. But we also this year had a, a, a major storyline involving the CBS Morning News, and we created. And, and one of our characters, Dan Egan, played by Reed Scott, became uh, an anchor on it. Yeah. Uh, uh, not, we didn't choose his fellow anchors to any way resemble Gail King or Charlie Rose. 
We just created new characters that didn't resemble them at all, but we did actually build at the Paramount lot that set, just as we have built the Oval Office. And we didn't tell CBS. <laughs> and it was pretty hilarious when the show started being, the season started being broadcast on HBO and the CBS uh, uh, Morning News suddenly discovered that they were a plot in our show without even knowing about it. <laughs> and with a whole, and a whole group of alternative characters as if, you know, pod people had taken over. <laughs> um, so we're very, so, but even in the very first season, she went on, Selena went on Meet the Press. We actually, we were then in Baltimore. We shot it on the Meet, Meet the Press set in Northwest Washington at uh, NBC. But we didn't say, oh, I'm sitting in for David Gregory. Right? We made just a fictional right. host played by an actor with a name you've never heard of. So we like the idea that it is this, this world, this fantasy world that we've created. Um, and this really comes begins with Armando because you know in In the Loop, uh, for those who've seen it, and I recommend it highly to those who have not, it's about a war, very much resembling the Iraq War that is ginned up for frivolous reasons and mistakes and lies, both at Ten Downing Street and at uh, Foggy Bottom. But the word Iraq is never uh, never in In the Loop. So this is um, uh, a, a conceit of his that I think has been you know, really worked for, for these, these pieces. Yeah, I was struck by that, that it's, you call it CBS. I mean, usually on shows on another network, they make up a network, you know, and they, they, or, or if they use Meet the Press, it's Meet the Press is playing along to be part of the scenario. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we're used to now, and this has been true for years, seeing television anchors play themselves both in feature films and in TV series. House of Cards does it all the time. We just take a different tack. We don't. We never. Uh, uh, we never want want to do that. You know, um, Nancy Pelosi and uh, John McCain played themselves even in a sitcom. Like they, I think they did in Parks and Rec. We have had at least one politician lobby to to play himself in the show, and uh, we turned him down. Yeah. And uh, he will go. He will go nameless. Martin O'Malley. <laughs> <laughs> before his great presidential run. Yeah, that pitch went about as well as his presidential campaign. Huh? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, Frank, about the other HBO show you mentioned that you're uh, yeah. you're working on. Uh, this is, I, I think, I saw one story about it. This is with, uh, you're producing with Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. Is that the? Is that yes, the I, it's, 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 um, it's a drama uh, called Succession, and it is about... Uh, uh, an 80-year-old um, media magnate who runs a huge empire, and it's you know it's everything from television to theme parks to feature films to video games, um, and his adult children and their spouses or partners who are vying to succeed to succeed him. It's written by a guy who. Uh, uh, I think is a wonderful writer, British actually, named uh, Jesse Armstrong. He wrote one episode in the first season of Veep. He wrote the last episode of the first season um, uh, where Selena cries, sort of like Hillary crying in New Hampshire. And Jesse, Jesse and I worked on a couple of things and um, in, the, in the five or six years since, but meanwhile, which didn't happen, but meanwhile he's had, some people may know he's, he's the creator or co-creator of two very successful and highly regarded British comedies, one called uh, 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 Peep Show and one called Fresh Meat. 
He's also written for uh, um, uh, a lot of other British stuff. He's a novelist, and he was a writer on In the Loop. Um, so it's a very sardonic, not unfunny um, uh, drama, but it is a drama. It's an hour, hour episodes. And Adam McKay, we had a, Jesse and I had a previous project we developed at HBO that, as I said, didn't get on. And Adam was going to direct the pilot of that, and then it didn't get on. He made the big short, and then we came back with this show, and Adam directed uh, the pilot, and um, uh, and you know he's a, he's in partnership in his in his in his uh, producing company with Will Ferrell, and um, so we're doing it. And so so the reason I'm trapped in New York is we're now you know nailing down everything, and we actually goes before the cameras in a few days and we've been having table reads and a lot of casting and stuff like that. It's, it's an ensemble cast. It doesn't uh, like Veep, but without a big star, but some actors that I think a lot of people are familiar with, like Kieran Culkin and uh, Jeremy Strong, who was in the big short and um, Matthew McFadden, who's a British actor and, 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 uh, uh, and others we're cast, we're casting even as we speak. And our hope is it's a really, um, you know, sort of scathing look at, at, at this world. Um, but we're actually trying to deal with the same issues. For instance, if the media empire in this in succession has a television network, it's fictional. We have to it's we're not doing a farce. We have to give it a fictional name. But when we reference other networks, are we going to reference CNN and Fox News? We're sort of still discussing that or whether or whether we're going to fictionalize them all or not give them names so it's and i think part of that's in my mind and perhaps to a certain extent jesse's uh, uh a carryover from our thinking about veep so you know with the, with the scenario you just described of course everyone immediately in the room said murdoch uh, and uh, so how do you you know do you do you just do you just go with that, or do you do lots of things to try to make it? Oh well, it's not really like the Murdochs because they own this well, business, or you know. Well, it's it 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 really it, there's certainly some Murdoch in there, but there's also a lot of other people. You know, we looked at everyone, and Jesse is like a you know uh, a ravenous for. Um, information and so you know there's a lot there's robert maxwell there's some some the redstone but we made the pilot uh which had been written months earlier late last november and early december in new york in fact the table read was like the day that trump was elected and we shot after that and suddenly we think wait these sons seem like eric and donald jr <laughs> we, we weren't thinking of trump at all when it was conceived um he wasn't even on the scene and so we hope, again, like Veep, the characters take on a life of their own, and it's not a Romana clay. But, you know, inevitably with any of these um, uh, uh, media, uh, fam famous media families, people are going to see some resemblances, and I guess they're inevitable. When do we get to see Succession? It's next year? Yeah, I mean, the hope, I think the hope is, you know, we, since we have exactly one episode, the pilot, and that's it, but is but assuming we're on time, I guess the hope is next summer. That's at least that's the earliest. And, um, uh, but it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's nine hours we have to make. Um, it's there, it's 
we're shooting it in New York, um, uh, but some of it on stages, you know, at Silver Cup and so, but you know, a lot of location is going to, and some of it takes place not in the United States. So it's going to be, um, a bear of a show to, uh, uh, produce, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. And, um, again, a great group of people to work with. Adam, however, right now is off making a Dick Cheney feature, uh, <laughs> which, I which is really about Dick Cheney, <laughs> which is really about Dick Cheney. And, um, I read a script, uh, six or seven months ago and it's, I'll, I'll say nothing about it, but it's not what you would expect. It's, it's, it was, well, it's very Adam McKay. It's very funny, even while it has a strong political point of view. Um, Frank, in a minute, I want to open it up to questions here. And I know sure. the audience will have a lot of them, but just uh, while people maybe make their way to the microphone, if they do have questions, well, uh, kind of maybe more broader question about TV for you, stepping out of your, your producer role. You right. know, when I, was a, when I was younger, you could safely watch no TV and not worry about missing anything that important. Now I am overwhelmed by the quantity of high quality television that I really want to watch. And the, the amount of content being produced by Netflix and Amazon, it's, it's staggering. And first of all, how does your attach to HBO? How does HBO navigate this world? But looking at it with your kind of cultural commentator's hat, you know, is t are we at peak TV? What, what happens from here? It's it's truly it's truly overwhelming, and it's and you know and I and and it's certainly overwhelming for people in television too because you want to keep up with your own business and it's just too much to watch. And indeed, this summer in the writers' room, while we're sort of you know drinking coffee and coming alive to return to Veep, inevitably it'll it'll be I binge watched this last night or I watched the first episode of this. What did you think? Everyone's looking for things that they can take off their list <laughs> so that, and say, oh, I don't have to bother with that. Um, so it's kind of overwhelming. I think that uh, uh, HBO's position is, is simply to keep doing what they're doing. I mean, obviously, uh, we can't have everything. Netflix spends more money on programming than almost everyone combined, and so... We'll, if, if people are mo most interested in, in, in money, which some people are and have a right to be there, we're going to lose some things. But what I think HBO prides itself on, and with good reason, based on you know the, the nine years I've been doing stuff there, there's a real development process, with, very intimate, with a very few number of executives, uh, and um, uh, that really makes the stuff better, and also... The way the shows are presented, we all like to binge, but there's something about a Game of Thrones or, a, in a, to a smaller degree, a, a Veep or a Girls or, uh, uh, or a Silicon Valley being presented where the, the conversation is sustained for weeks as people wait to see what happens. And they're just really good people there, and that's hard to do. Look, you know, uh, your brother's show, a great show, and... and at a place which is also famous for that having that kind of light-fingered creative development where the network is actually wants to make the, the best show possible uh, in, 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 uh, in the spirit of what the creators of the shows want rather than grind it out like sausage and deliver dictates. So it's a very, um, it's a very good place to work. And, and look, you know, some things fail, but, uh, 
we a lot of things are are really good or promising or at the beginning of their lives like Westworld. Uh, uh, Alec Berg, who used to be Alec Berg and David Mandel were writing partners, including working together on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Alec Berg did um, created Silicon Valley. He has a new show with Bill Hader called Barry, which I've seen some of, which is terrific and unexpected and half hour comedy, uh, insecure. So there's a process that produces these things. It's not like we're going out and shopping. So just have to keep doing what we're doing and hope that people discover it. And it seems like they'll find a big little lies, even if there's a ton of good stuff. And I mean, really good stuff. You know, there's so much, uh, uh, good TV, including foreign TV, you know, something like, um, uh, happy Valley, the British thriller that's on Netflix that we might not have seen, you know, 10 years ago. So or had access to so easily or, or Jesse's British shows, which are on Hulu here. So we all just uh, keep on going, but it is weird. You know, Jill Abramson could vouch that there was a gag, uh, a line at the Times. That people used to say, you can edit the Times, you can read the Times, but you can't do both. And it's sort of like working television. <laughs> we can't keep up either with everything. Yes, exactly. All right, well, we now have a line of people who want to ask you questions. So please fire away. step up, make your question a question. And wait, I forgot one thing to tell everybody, which is that uh, we have a hashtag. If you want to tweet about how interesting Frank has been, it's TribFest17. So please feel free to do that. Yes. Uh, hi, Frank. My name is Robin. Hi. And I had a question about the use of satire to help people understand things. Uh -huh. And my thinking is that a lot of mainstream, quote-unquote, normal reporters, whether they're newspaper or online or television, seem to have a harder time covering the current administration than the late-night comedians do. And so, for example, a John Oliver or a Samantha Bee, or a Stephen Colbert, through using satire, might actually be able to tell the truth or convey the truth in a way that, uh, to use your example of the CBS Morning News, they may not be able to. Well, you know, uh, yeah. I think this is nothing, this thought is nothing new, and you may, and you may recall uh, at the height of the, of the Bush years, when Jon Stewart really, you know, took off, when The Daily Show really took off under his auspices, a lot of people, probably including me, wrote, you can sort of get the news better here than by watching the evening news. Jon Stewart always argued, and I think with, with good reason, you sort of had to know the news to appreciate uh, the jokes he was making, his satire of it, you couldn't use it as your only news source. And I think the two things uh, complement each other. And if, if, if I, I think there's been a lot of good, I, 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 I happen to feel there's been a lot of good journalism about uh, Trump. By good, I mean thorough, investigative, the, the sort of war, that, the, the friendly war that's going on now between uh, the Times and the Washington Post is a great thing for everybody, for readers, for democracy, for trying to find out what's going on in this crazy administration. We need that, and it's great to have the satire too, but it's, it's, it's a little bit apples and oranges and they complement each other. I think if we didn't have 
you know, uh, the Post and the Times rooting around and what's going on uh, in this government. We brilliant as John Oliver is and and Samantha B, that can't be a substitute. And they draw, after all, on the news. Take the most recent um, example, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, who's not known as being a political comedian, someone of whom I don't know him. I'm a fan. I've always been a fan of him as a comedian. So his campaigning against um, uh, the Trump or congressional Republican health care bill has been very effective and been humorous as well as touching at times. But he wouldn't have been effective if people didn't know what people were saying in Washington and what he was what he was responding to. So I think you need both. Right. We have quite a few people lined up here, so let's try okay, to get, go, get all the I'll questions in. Keep That's going. all right. Hi, yeah. Frank. Um, David Mandel was here for South by Southwest, and he said that y'all had to cut a golden showers joke because <laughs> of the uh, reported tape. Um, and I was wondering if um, Ted Cruz liking a semi-incestuous bisexual pornography tweet on uh, Twitter was impacting your writing processes for the new season. <laughs> yeah. It, la it landed. Yeah, it was landed that life for Veep? Which was it? Yeah. I have to say, there was another incident, and it's been killing me ever since to remember, there was another incident we had tracked of some other politician, not as prominent as Ted Cruz, and possibly at the state government level, who had been caught with his browser up in a similar situation with some porno site on it. And we had flagged it as something we wanted to uh, give Jonah last season. <laughs> we didn't, if we had. Then, again, we'd be credited for anticipating this uh, Ted Cruz uh, embarrassment. Great. <laughs> Hi, Frank. Heather Olivia Shannon from Texas Wesleyan University. Hi. My question for you is, I'm a, in a digital production class right now. What's your advice to digital production students and what kind of techniques that they can learn in 2017? That's not my area. I, I you know, I, I wish I could, that I'm uh, on the, I can tell you about, you know, writing and acting and putting together a show, but the digital, the digital uh, production aspects, I just don't know anything about. And, and frankly, I don't think even if I were, Veep would be a good ex example of the kind of, Veep is a pretty old fashioned show. It doesn't use, uh, Obviously, we, it's digital, but I think that um, anyway, it's just not my it's just not my area of expertise. But, you, but you I wish you, make, well. you did make Skype work, so congratulations. Yeah, on yeah, that. I made yeah, Skype. That was a major achievement to make <laughs> Skype. Well, I mean, you know, Selena, you know, she uh, tweet the the tweeting thing that Selena did, which is anticipate a lot that what's happened, including with Trump and her press. You know, Mike McClintock trying to stop her a season or two ago. Believe me, that Selena's level of uh, tech expertise is not uncommon among the people who actually create and appear in V. Well, what kinds of writing techniques can you, you I'm talk sorry, about? I couldn't hear you. What Say kinds again? of writing techniques can Let's you just, speak I'm about? sorry, I think we should just, I want to get all the questions in, okay. so if you don't mind, right, I'll just limit it to one, but thank you. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Connor Crowley, and uh, my question is, uh, amongst my family, after every episode, there's always like a huge discussion that seems to be a very politically, uh, however cynical it may be, it's always about politics that we take from, so, from the show. So when uh, creating the show, how do you uh, manage the fact that it does cause a discussion and like that, like I said, even though it's uh, it, how it applies to the real world. So when it comes to having these uh, main uh, 
arcing story points that cause such a uh, discussion amongst people? How do you go about going through those uh, arcs? How, what was the last part? How do we go about... Well, with those uh, main story arcs that are yeah. very uh, well, prominent. Well, you know, we always begin with story. We're thrilled that people discuss politics uh, in the show, and everyone uh, on the show, uh, particularly, certainly, Dave, me, Julia, and the writers, um, are love politics, you know, we're, we're crazed about politics. Um, uh, uh, one of our writers is the help work on Al Franken's books, including the recent ones. So we're all very engaged in it. So we like that. But we, but we, but we never think we want to teach a lesson. We really begin with the characters and the stories and what's going to be funny. And we feel if we're true to that, the rest will take care of itself because there's a reality basis to these characters in the story. So, so uh, even if, if it's farcical and, and satirical. So uh, we're never sewing up a lesson. We're just asking questions about human nature, particularly as practiced in Washington. Okay, so we got three more quick questions. Hi, my name is Ian Johnson, and I have a question about uh, not the newsroom, the show, but the newsroom of print. Um, you always see those shows, uh, House of Cards, whatever. Uh, there's always a print component. There's always a print reporter that's on the beat. But is there a, enough drama or interest or something we can do here to actually make a show just about a print newsroom? Uh, I guess if you wanted to do it in period, <laughs> you know, it's, it's vanishing um, uh, very fast. And, and uh, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a romantic world, you know. We know it well. A lot of the people appearing uh, this weekend, uh, you know, came up through it and love it. But it's vanishing, and the days of the front page are gone. And one thing about Sorkin's The Newsroom is I th thought a, pr a problem with it was it was it actually, although it was set like in a CNN-like network, it was kind of the newsroom of yore. It almost could have been out of the front page, a little bit, perhaps a little bit not quite up to the way things are happening now. So, you know, I, I'm sure people are writing scripts about the editor who retired or from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and went to start a small newspaper in Oshkosh to try to rekindle print journalism. But it would really be hard to set that in uh, 2017. Great. You. More. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Sally. I've spent a lot of my career working for elected, elected officials, and I tell people all the time that Veep really does represent what it's like a lot of the days. Oh, but my question is, I have four kids, and my quest, I, I watch it a lot, and they're older and stuff, but I watch it a lot with them, and I feel like every season it's ratcheted up on the raunch. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's getting raunchier and raunchier to where I'm cringing when my kids are around. So is, is that deliberate, or is it because there's different writers? Or, or? It's, 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 I think it's really, oh, not that the British can't be wrong, but I think it's a flexion of the difference between British writers and American writers, quite honestly. I think that um, uh, not that, you know, British writers can be quite naughty and scatological, and, and this is a style that Armando created for this show. But I think it's a different, Americans is a different sensibility. It's as simple as that. There's no mandate to do that. And, um, but I, I think it probably has gone that direction. One thing we've found from the beginning is that we have a lot, there are a lot of kids who like the show and watch it with their parents. By kids, I mean 
over yeah. 12 or 13, <laughs> but yeah, not you know, on the younger old. side that you expect. They're older. I mean, they're, yeah. Okay. Okay. And you have the last question. Thank you. Um, I love the show. My favorite episode of all time is the one where they have the congressional committee hearing. And that yes. feels really, really <laughs> real to me. But I know y'all have had to cut jokes before because they coincided with an actual headline. So did that happen? Do y'all have to cut anything from that episode? As I recall, no. As I recall, no. That was uh, uh, that was the investigation, right? Where they where the the the, uh, the head of the committee yeah. reads every Jonah insult that's turned up in the <laughs> record. Yeah, uh, I I don't remember that one being outstripped by uh, actual events. Um, Thank you. I have a quick announcement. This is the last session of the day. And if you go to the courtyard here, there is a reception with um, hors d'oeuvres and a cash bar. I'd encourage everybody to come and, and chat about what we've been talking about. And lastly, I want to thank Frank. You'll be the first choice would have been to have. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, th yeah. thank, thank yeah. you for putting up with this, Jacob. Thanks for great interview and questions from you and everyone else. And. I, I'm sorry I'm not there, and I wish we could go to the reception right now and have a beer. Well, we were, we were very happy to have you in any form. Yeah. Well, thank Carry you. It's very kind we'll, of we'll you. We'll be watching. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.